I had no idea how controversial this was going to be, or even was, really. I knew it was controversial to some extent. Hail hey, Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. But I didn't understand why. And blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Dr. Warren Hearn is used to people showing up outside his clinic and saying prayers. He's used to their insults, their threatening letters. The doctor has taken out restraining orders against people who have vowed to kill him and has dodged a few literal bullets himself. Still, Dr. Warren Hearn keeps doing what he's done since Lyndon Johnson was president. He provides abortions. I have a million things to do. I have a lot of work to do here. I love my work. I love seeing patients. I'm Gustavo Ariano. You're listening to The Times, daily news from the LA Times. It's Monday, March 14th, 2022. Later this year, the Supreme Court will announce a decision in a case that's likely to have seismic consequences on an issue that has divided Americans for nearly 50 years, the constitutional protection for the right to abortion. Reproductive health care has been under extreme and relentless assault, especially in recent months. We're deeply committed to making sure everyone has access to care, and we will defend it with every tool we have. We may well be on the verge of an era when the Supreme Court sends Roe versus Wade to the ash heap of history where it belongs. Before the Supreme Court makes its decision, the Times will look at this issue from a number of perspectives. Today, we highlight a clinic in Boulder, Colorado, It's there that my L.A. Times colleague and Houston bureau chief, Molly Hennessy Fisk, recently met up with Dr. Hearn. Uh, My basic attitude is somebody named Molly can't be all bad. (laughs) Thanks, Dr. Hearn. Okay, yeah. Molly, welcome to The Times. Thanks for having me. So Warren Hearn, who is he and what's his story? So Dr. Hearn is 83 years old. He owns the Boulder Abortion Clinic, which he's been operating since 1975. And he's been providing abortions since the 1960s when it became legal in Colorado. Talking to Dr. Hearn was like a living history. It was an oral history of the abortion rights movement in America and also abortion treatment in America and the nitty gritty of how it has developed because he was the one who was developing it. You spent some time with him at his clinic there in Boulder. What's it like? I have my wonderful staff. This is Debbie, who's head counselor. Hi. And Melissa, this is Gina. So his clinic provides what are called later abortions to women who are later in their pregnancies. I'm just gonna look at the church. Yeah, look at the church. Okay. And those kinds of abortions are only available in a handful of states. And are these for next week or? Well, these are patients that are already done. So a lot of the patients that they have are flying in from other states. They're traveling pretty far and his staff are working with those people and their circumstances, their transportation, finding places to stay, finding a way to get to the clinic. So it's sort of like they have the medical treatment, but then they have this whole web of other stuff that they have to deal with. We get a lot of Spanish speaking patients and several people are bilingual in the staff. And what about the building itself? The building is old. This is one of the procedure rooms here. 
and uh, it opens right out to a space that uh, was a sort of outdoors hallway. And, and we've it's been modernized somewhat, but a lot of the modernization that's been done has to do with security. That's all bulletproof stuff. This is bulletproof. You have to go through four layers of bulletproof glass and a security desk to get in. You have to present your ID. You can't bring a lot of things into the building. That's all for security because they've faced threats and attacks over the years. 1988, one of my staff members walking through the waiting room. Five bullets came through the waiting room and hit the wall and broke the window. One of the bullets just missed the guy that was here helping me. Uh, Where was that? Over here? And Dr. Hearn explained to me that he's had to spend so much money on security that he hasn't been able to do a lot of the improvements to the building, to the patient rooms that he would like to do. The, the very front window, one of the front windows, okay. I mean, this building shows the scars of the decades-long abortion wars in the U.S., but it's more than just a historical site. The fight continues. We will hear argument this morning in case 19-1392, Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization. General Stewart. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. Last December, the U.S. Supreme Court heard arguments in this case, Dobbs versus Jackson. It's a case out of Mississippi, and they're expected to decide it later this spring or early summer to issue a ruling. A lot of people are saying probably in June that would really be a decision on Roe v. Wade. This court should overrule Roe and Casey and uphold the state's law. I welcome the court's questions whether it gets overturned or functionally gutted, Dr. Hearn is not optimistic. I think that the only steady hand uh, that might keep it from being formally overturned is John Roberts, who is clearly anti-abortion. The thing that is at issue before us today is 15 weeks. But he understands that the political fallout of overturning Roe on its face might cause a problem for the Republican. It depends on how many people care. Most people don't care. It's been almost 50 years since Roe passed, and he's looking at all that he's gone through and how optimistic he was in the beginning when it first passed to now where he's had so many years of living in fear. They just don't care. There are people who do care, but most of them are not voting. Coming up after the break, Dr. Hearn's first abortion. Welcome back. Molly, before the break, we're talking about Dr. Hearn and how he's been providing abortion since before the Roe v. Wade decision in 73. So I'm curious, how did he get his start? So he comes from a Midwestern family. His parents were from Kansas and they moved to Colorado, which is where he grew up. My folks moved from Kansas in 1942, in January 42, a month after Pearl Harbor. It was one of the singular best things that ever happened to me in my life was to, but they moved from Kansas to Colorado. His parents in particular, he said, were very supportive. They weren't extremely religious, they were Protestant, but he didn't have any religious barriers to doing this work. When he was younger and a medical student and coming out of medical school, he did work in what was the beginnings of the Peace Corps. He was actually hired by Sergeant Shriver, who was one of the founders of the Peace Corps, and worked in South America and Peru and Brazil. And he saw what women went through there, not only in dealing with abortion, but also the lack of abortion access and the lack of birth control. This was really an eye-opening experience. 
I looked at these women who were having eight or 10 babies and they were begging for fertility control. They were falling apart from having so many births, unattended births. He came back to Colorado determined to be involved in both family planning and also providing abortion access. My public health background and my experience had shown me that this is a critically important issue as a matter of social justice. And the first abortion that Dr. Hearn performed, what does he remember about it? Well, it's interesting because the way he described it to me, he said it was difficult for the patient, but it was also difficult for him because it was such an unknown, you know, doing this for the first time and that he was nervous. I remember the first abortion I did was on a 17-year-old young woman who wanted to be an anesthesiologist. And I was terrified, and so was she. At the end, she cried and so did I, because I was happy that I hadn't hurt her. This was something that was really important to her in terms of pursuing her, her life. And how dangerous was it to perform abortions in the days before Roe versus Wade? So I talked to one of Dr. Hearn's former staffers who had come to work with him in those early days. She had actually moved to Colorado from Michigan and she had had an illegal abortion in Michigan as a student. And she talked to me about what she had to go through. And to this day, she says she doesn't know if the guy she got the abortion from was a doctor or a medical student or in any way trained. She said he made her feel really terrible about what she was doing and that that's what drove her to get involved in working at clinics first in Michigan and then with Dr. Hearn. That in those early days, both she and Dr. Hearn too saw it as a service of keeping women safe because if you were having these illegal abortions, you just really didn't know what was going on and you were getting charged money and, and meeting people in literally back alleys to get them. Abortion became legal in the United States, of course, because of Roe versus Wade. And Dr. Hearn was there at that initial Supreme Court hearing in 1971. We'll hear arguments in number 18, uh, Roe against uh, Wade. Yeah, he was there and he knew the lead attorney, Sarah Weddington. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. The instant case is a direct appeal from a decision of the United States District Court for the Northern District of Texas. So he was watching her and he was impressed with how she argued the case. And then afterwards they discussed it. I remember that Sarah was very poised, uh, very professional. She was well-dressed. She sort of batted down a couple of ridiculous male chauvinist things. Mr. Floyd, it's an old joke, but if a man argues against two beautiful ladies like this, they're going to have the last word. It was interesting to hear him reflect on what it was like there and how she was treated by the court. And then after Roe versus Wade was decided, how did Dr. Hearn feel? He was really positive. He was really energized. In the early 70s, it was very exciting. Lots of possibilities. There didn't seem to be any real barriers to what we were going to do. He felt like he had a role in making sure that this decision, which he saw as foundational to human rights in America, to democracy, was put into effect because he felt like without clinics, without providers, the law was toothless. So that's why he decided to open the clinic in Colorado. That's interesting. Colorado, it's traditionally been a purple state, a Western state, but there's also been a long push by anti-abortion activists there to ban the procedure because Colorado is also one of the centers of the Christian right. 
That's right. So Colorado legalized abortion in 1967, shortly before California did and, and well before the Roe v. Wade ruling. And the state still allows forms of later abortion that California doesn't. California generally limits abortion to 24 weeks. Colorado has emerged as a very purple state generally. You have a lot of folks who have very mixed opinions on a lot of issues, abortion, gun rights, business and development, you know, ranching and the West and public land. So there's a lot of divisions, but that also means there's a lot of diversity of opinion. The landscape is very mixed. And why is Colorado's location so important in the abortion debate when we talk about its future? So much of the Midwest and into the West is so-called trigger states. So states that have laws on the books that if Roe was overturned would effectively ban abortion. There's technically 12 trigger states in the country, but when you add in the bans and other kinds of laws, the number rises to about 26. So when you look on a map, Colorado is surrounded by these states. And already we've seen since Texas passed an abortion ban, SB 8, Texas has become the largest state with a law that bans abortions before many women even know they're pregnant. This is the strictest law against abortion rights in the United States since the Supreme Court's landmark Roe v. Wade decision in 1973. The law bans abortions after the detection of a fetal heartbeat, usually after six weeks. Colorado has seen an influx of patients from Texas, but they're not really sure how they're going to be able to cope if all of those states end up passing bans if Roe's overturned. Coming up, the sacrifices Dr. Hearn has made over the years to provide abortions and why he continues. We're back. Molly, you mentioned earlier all the security updates Dr. Hearn has to make to his clinic. But what sort of threats have been made against him personally over the years? He's faced this sort of constant barrage of threats. I want to make sure I have your name. It's Kevin Williams. There's small things like protesters staking out the clinic. And why is it important to you to be out here, Kevin? Uh, you have about a week. <laughs> They come every Tuesday morning because they know that that's new patient intake day. And so when he drives his car in, he has to take strategic routes and park in a strategic place. And he thinks about things like snipers and whether they might have a sight line on him as he walks into the clinic. I went to great expense to fix a, a parking place here so that I didn't have to walk across the driveway and get shot by somebody, a sniper, who's in the parking garage. But there have also been some pretty serious stalkers over the years, people he had to get protective orders against, people who made death threats against him or put him on hit lists. How many doctors have to worry about that kind of stuff? Hit lists of doctors, some of whom actually did get killed. The basic lesson is that the anti-abortion people will accept any level of violence, any level of violence to impose their views, and they will stop at nothing.
when I think about violence against abortion clinics, I always think of George Tiller. He was a Wichita doctor who was murdered after years of threats by anti-abortion demonstrators. And he was even called out by name on Fox News for years. And I guess I shouldn't have been surprised to know that Dr. Hearn was friends with Tiller. Dr. Tiller actually was shot a couple of times. He was shot in both arms first and he survived that. And then he was fatally shot later in the head by an anti-abortion extremist, Scott Roeder, while Dr. Tiller was ushering at his um, church service. Witnesses said that he had been to the church several times. He was sitting in the sanctuary when the services started, got up a few minutes later, shot the doctor in the head with one shot without saying a word, and then threatened a couple of ushers on the way out. His wife was watching from the choir and saw it happen. Afterwards, she called Dr. Hearn and told him, Warren, he's gone. What? He's gone. They shot him in the church lobby. I was just devastated. Yeah, she called me. Dr. Tiller had been a good friend. They'd gone on ski trips together. He'd been to family gatherings with him, and they had been really allies. And there's very few doctors from that era who are left. So what sort of impact has all of these threats had on Dr. Hearn's personal life? I'm out of practice, so. Should I sit over here? Yeah. He says it affects almost every aspect of his life, the way he lives, not only when he's at the office or going to the office, to the clinic, but when he's at home. I spent some time with him. And he was playing piano for me and for his wife. which is something he enjoys doing, but he had his back to the window and that made him nervous. Just these daily tasks of walking around, moving around even in his own house. He and his wife made sure to pull the blinds down as soon as it was dark because they were worried about somebody shooting through the window, which is something that actually happened to a doctor in Buffalo, New York. He was killed that way. So what keeps Dr. Hearn going? I mean, he's in his 80s. He could easily retire. If he retired right now before the Supreme Court makes a decision, I don't think anyone would hold it against him, you know? Well, I think he would hold it against himself. He feels obligated to still be doing this work. And so I've stated that if women are not free to make these decisions about their own lives and health, they are not free at all. And if women are not free, none of us are free. He feels guilty that he hasn't been working as much as he used to because of COVID and the risk of him getting COVID and then also trying to hand over some of the practice to other doctors to work with him, younger doctors. But he feels like this is not only a calling, but an obligation. Molly, thank you so much for this conversation. Thanks for having me. And that's it for this episode of The Times, daily news from the LA Times. Tomorrow, 
how the pandemic has wreaked havoc on hotel house workers. Kasha Brasalian was a hef on this episode, and our show is produced by Shannon Lynn, Denise Guerra, Kasha Brasalian, Ashley Brown, and Angel Carreras. Our engineer is Mario Diaz, our editor is Kinsey Moreland. Our executive producers are Hasmin Aguilera and Shawnee Hilton, and our theme music is by Andrew Eatman. Like what you're listening to? Then make sure to follow the times on whatever platform you use. I'm Gustavo Ariano. We'll be back tomorrow with all the news in Desmadre. Gracias. Gracias.